Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. If you've been living under a rock these past few weeks, you may not know that we chose to do this series on marriage right now because we are leading up to the Helpful Marriage Conference in Indianapolis on March 4th and 5th. Tim and Mary Lee will be speaking from their wealth of experience counseling married couples over the past 45 years. It's going to be informative, it's going to be fun, it's going to be great. So, it's time to crawl out from under that rock and go to helpfulmarriage.com and register today. You could almost think of today's episode as a bit of premarital counseling. My goal going into the conversation was to talk about the challenges of getting married and how young Christian couples will be different and stand out in their approach to marriage in a world gone mad. How does a young couple who wants to honor God with their sexuality approach marriage differently than everyone else? Once again, and I think I'll have to give this warning for each of these episodes about marriage, we talk discreetly but openly about sex in this episode. So if you aren't ready to have those conversations with your children, you might want to put your headphones in. My guests for today's episode are Max Carell and Tim Bailey. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Hi, Lucas. Good. 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 Hello. So, have you been writing recently, Tim? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's all I ever do. Write and talk. You've been, now, okay, you're not allowed to get into it, but you've been writing about gentle and lowly, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you've written one article, you've got another one coming up? Yeah, I've done two, Okay, and I have another one that should go up this afternoon. Okay, good. What have you been up to, Max? I have not. I've been burning wood. It's cold. <laughs> it's yeah. cold out. Yeah, it is cold. Well, good to see you, gentlemen. So last time we started our, our series on marriage, and so we talked about the three purposes of marriage. And just to reiterate, three purposes of marriage are companionship, so that, that mutual help as a prophylactic against sin, and we talked about that for a little bit, and also to produce a godly seed for children. Those are the three purposes of marriage, and we talked a lot about that last week. This week, I want to talk about the beginning of marriage. How in the world is it possible to get started with marriage? And I was thinking about the fact, as a single Christian guy, man, 18, 19 years old, I think that my conception about what it meant, what it would mean to be married, went as far as having a pretty roommate that I could have sex with. That's about as deep as I was. Now, of course, I would, you know, she would be my friend. We would be best friends, of course. But that... Yeah, but that's not true. If I know you at all, I know that the thing that matters most to you is the life of the mind. You are a terminally curious man. Mm -hmm. And so when you say pretty in sex, I think you're underselling yourself. I think... What you wanted was an intellectual companion, and it would be nice if she was pretty and the two of you could have sex together. <laughs> okay. I, no, I, I'm serious about that. I really do believe that it would have tormented you to death to have somebody that you could not share the life of thought mm. and doctrine and truth and curiosity with. So I'm sorry, but 
that's my adjustment. And in a matter of fact, in a few years, you did marry my daughter, <laughs> you know, Max. Well, I was going to say, Lucas, it was important that that roommate that you would have sex with would be a woman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that you weren't really anticipating the the reality of woman as you anticipated that hope for your future. In other words, no, yeah, in yeah. other words, when you said a friend, right, you weren't really thinking about the the realities and in, the in ways the Facebook it, sense of the yeah, word. Friend, yes, exactly. The, the, the realities leveling. in which a woman and a man are not the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yes, you know, you knew that you wanted to have sex with a woman and that you wanted to be compatible with her. And as Tim said, intellectual life of the mm-hmm, mind, mm-hmm. but at the same time, uh, the world of what a woman was by in contrast to what you were mm-hmm. was it i think was what you were saying is kind of a foreign world yeah to yeah you. yep and of course i i think even then i would have said yeah i want to have kids but getting from here to there it would have been very misty in my mind you know like you know an awful lot of life is just simply completing what our fathers and mothers did before us we just copy and thinking about you at 19, you'd marry a woman because that's what your father did. Uh-huh. And his father did it, and his father's father did it, and Adam and Eve did it. And so there are an awful lot of parts of our lives that we just simply think are good ruts and we stay in them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's about as sophisticated as most conservative Christians think about sex. Well, you marry a woman. I always tell people that the reason we marry the reason we don't marry same sex is that the plumbing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's about as deep as we get into it, and yep. we don't want to talk about it, and we don't want to think about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'd almost also say that the process of courtship or dating or engagement, whatever you want to call it, is a process of, <laughs> you know, walking through landmines that explode on us all of which are attached to the fact that i am a man and she is a woman and that her father is a man and her mother is a woman you know in other words i don't think we go in thinking of sex seriously other than physical intimacy but i do think that from the very beginning of planning the wedding you know i mean and then the rehearsal dinner and then the wedding and the guest lists and the gifts i still don't understand though well i just think people go into marriage knowing that they should marry a member of the opposite sex mm-hmm. and, and women it. are happy that that member of the opposite sex will join with her in a way that will give her children mm-hmm. the man is not really marrying for children <laughs> And as they get together and begin to plan the wedding and get engaged and stuff, they discover that they're other to one another. Yeah. And the other is man and woman. And it's a minefield. They keep stepping on it and it keeps like jacking them up into the air and leaving them bloody. Right. And they thought it was supposed to be romantic as they prepare for marriage, you know. Yeah. David, you're Well, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that the, often that landmine doesn't really start exploding until later. We, how many times do we have couples that say to us, well, we've never had a fight. We've never had a fight. And as you're saying, these landmines, they are inevitable. They are absolutely inevitable because we are male and female. But I think that there are ways in which we, what, we... uh 
Uh, we, we hover over them. We avoid them. We avoid them. I can, it's very easy to imagine a couple going through the process of getting married without really fighting or alleging that they didn't fight, not considering any, any of their discussions to be fights just because of the way that they had learned to interact with each other. And when they start to fight, not have any concept that that fighting has to do with male and female, Mm. that there's something basic about it that, that is, uh, that is understandable by every other married couple that ever fought in the past, the same kinds of fights, the same arguments, the same, uh, the same contrast. Well, having been in a university community for years and done a lot of weddings and a lot of premarital counseling, I'm just going to say there is no couple that gets through engagement without fights constantly. Mm. Now they may have a way of spinning it to one another and to their own hearts and minds that they deny it's a fight, but they're sitting in the office and you watch the tension and you watch them trying to deny that there's tension present number one right so no i'm not willing to say that anybody goes through an engagement with bliss it's Mm -hmm. hard to be engaged and hey listen here's an idea it's hard because you are not just uniting as a couple you're uniting two family systems Mm -hmm. and even if the two of you get along perfectly your families won't and so i and what i want to say also is that hey listen one of the sad things is that you as a pastor in premarital counseling feel so squelched in being able to interpret to them what they're fighting over because you know you better not bring up that this is predictable that you're the woman and he's the man and you said this and he said that. And so that's why I say it's a minefield because they're not expecting the tensions they have mm-hmm. and they won't allow themselves to interpret them in view of their sex, who they are, man, woman. So how do they interpret them just as? Oh, they just interpret them as a glitch that as soon as they go on their honeymoon, it will evaporate and they'll have bliss. Then they come home for the honeymoon and you talk to them and they've hit the wall I mean, it may take them a couple of weeks after the honeymoon, but generally on the honeymoon, they'll hit the wall of, you know, disappointment, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't know why you just gave me this confused look because don't we recognize in our premarital counseling that couples just simply are unwilling to recognize the weight of sexuality in human relationships? I think we do. But I don't think our. I don't think. But he pre- was looking confused. I think I'm our premarital curious. counseling, though, is has we have as a desire to dig and dig and dig and try to figure out what's going to happen in the years to come. When I went through premarital counseling, we did it in a group of forty couples on an afternoon at a United Methodist Church in Kentucky, and and then we took a test. <laughs> And my whole point is that I think today so many couples go, how many couples have we had move here after they've been married? And they didn't have any premarital counseling. Yeah, yeah, sure. Nobody nobody sat down with them and started digging into things. Can I, can I just answer your question or what you said? You, you said, why did I give you a puzzled look? It's because I just think that it's so far from their minds. Like it's not even a question that's in the galaxy of their thought, you know, that these conflicts are coming as a result of our differences sexually that's why and yet, I, and yet every every poem every painting mm-hmm. every opera every movie every novel 
every song is about this conflict. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so it just boggles my mind that people are so committed to not seeing what is hitting them on the end of their nose. Well, that's exactly what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the things that we're not seeing that are hit that's hitting us on the end of our nose. Let's say you have a couple who are Christians and have been taught about manhood and womanhood, right? Let's say they have actually been taught about them. How are they going to look different as they approach marriage? Let's say they're even in the the courtship dating, you know, they're kind of eyeing each other. From that point on, what's what looks different than the rest of the world? And I think to answer my to start by answering my own question, uh, uh, for one thing, I think that uh, a young man and woman who's between the ages of you know seventeen and twenty one, if they start eyeing each other, it's clear they're going to be thinking about marriage, like. It's not, I'm not saying that they're going to think this is the one I want to marry right away, but they are thinking about marriage. Whereas in the, the, West, the, the rest of the world, and even in the evangelical church, all throughout the evangelical church, the idea of marriage is not even a glimmer of a thought until at the earliest you get out of college, right? I mean, there's no dad, an evangelical dad who wants his daughter to be married before she has her undergraduate degree, as far as I can tell. And so that's going to have a huge impact on how young men and women even approach that process of, of getting married. Let me bring some realism into this and say, if that is the way we approach, and if, if we're conservative and do believe in men and women, and not just persons, yeah, and believe that a man should marry a woman and not another man, and a woman should marry a man, not another woman— and that we have some basic commitment to children, but that we do have an absolute commitment to our children getting ahead, mm. okay? And that by getting ahead, what we mean is that they don't sit and wait for a man, mm. <laughs> but they go get it. And mm. what they get is their degree, then their profession, then some tenure in their profession, which is some security financially. If we live in a way that tries to straddle between the world and Christ, inevitably what will happen is that we will fall into sin. Every time you straddle, you fall into the drink. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the sin we fall into is a sin that's everywhere. I don't care what church it is. And it's the sin of fornication. Yeah. Our churches are drowning in fornication. Right. And a significant part of that fornication is because of our desire to postpone marriage Mm -hmm. and our desire for our children to go ahead and to have relationships with the opposite sex, knowing full well that they have no hope of doing what God has ordained to come when those relationships are formed, which is that physical intimacy goes together with emotional intimacy. Right. Right. And so we'll have daughters and sons who are who we allow to become emotionally intimate, they don't guard their hearts. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. they fall in love or in infatuation or something, Right. but they know they better not breathe a word of engagement mm-hmm. or marriage because they still have miles to go before they sleep <laughs> in the bed together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. And so I don't know, I come back to the issue of, you know, and you talk about 
Well, let's assume that we're talking to conservative Christians who do teach their children to be men and women, okay? Yeah. And the minute you say that, I'm thinking, oh my word, there's not a conservative Christian who isn't certain that they've taught their children what it means to be a man and a woman. Everybody thinks they teach that. You know, they dress their daughters in some something attractive. Yeah. And their sons play some sports and work on the car. I mean, everybody thinks, everybody that's halfway aware of the decadence of the Western world thinks if they're Christians, and especially if they're reformed, they think that they have taught their children manhood and womanhood. Mm-hmm. But, oh my goodness, it's, it's not good. They haven't even begun. It's not good. I'm thinking of one thing in specific. I think all three of us, having done much premarital counseling, would agree that when a man is getting ready to get married and is approaching the wedding ceremony, he is very fixated on finishing the task. Mm -hmm. Whereas the woman facing the marriage is very fixated on the life Although she's also fixated on the wedding ceremony. Don't you forget that. When the wedding ceremony is over, he has finished the job Uh he had to do. And she thinks that he has joined her in just starting the job they have to do. (laughs) I mean, am I right? right? Isn't that the difference between men and women right there? Yeah. And so how can you do good premarital counseling without being aware that the man thinks that he's almost done (laughs) (laughs) max what do you think yeah i think that's absolutely true and and that men think well and i think young people are so clueless today as to think that the other person is thinking the same way they are yeah 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 and so the man thinks that she's just that's just where she's headed to. She's thinking about getting it done. Now. She's we're a roommate. Gonna, we're going to consummate. And that's what roommates do. <laughs> yeah, consummate. Yeah. And the woman is thinking, oh boy, uh, pretty Father. soon I'll have something. Well, maybe, but maybe just pretty soon I'll have somebody who will cuddle with me all the time. Uh, yeah. And it could be like just that horrible that she's just going to finally have a cuddle buddy. Mm. And she finds out she married a man. <laughs> and, and that, and that, and that every time, every time they start to cuddle and she thinks, isn't this sweet? He's going to think, well, you know, this is heading in a good direction. Mm. And she's going to think, well, isn't this nice? We'll just do this for hours. <laughs> and after a nice. while, they've had enough fights that he, th- he knows what she's thinking. Yeah, and so yeah. he doesn't want yes. to cuddle with her. And if she snookers him into doing it, he's sitting there thinking, the rest of my life, shoot me. Yeah. Just shoot me. Well, there's, it's certainly a recipe for a lot of anger. <laughs> but guess what? He is male. She is female. And that is how, they're, that is how God wired them. That's, that's within us. That's how we are wired. And that brings us to that quote from chesterton about what not whether it'll be a quarrel we know it'll be a quarrel but whether it'll be a lover's quarrel Mm -hmm. because a lot of the realities of all the quarrels that we have yeah marriage is a melding together of two mutually incompatible forces man and woman 
The question isn't whether it'll be a quarrel. It will. The question is, can you keep it a lover's quarrel? Now, I'm sure that that's a paraphrase, but. Yeah. And, and so you think about our, our culture today says, oh, no, there's no such thing as two incompatible forces here. And yet at the same time, we're having all of these uh, debates on the national news about transgender track stars taking all the records of the colleges mm-hmm. and and wait a minute what's the deal here yeah. you know what's the big deal and the fact is men are men women are women teaching young men and women which we've covered now for the last few weeks talking about teenagers to be men and to be women is foundational to it in the process of getting married i think there's nothing more fundamental than a man taking initiative and pursuing a woman and a woman having the basic attitude of being vulnerable and open to the man that wants to pursue her. And so, I mean, that right there, you know, the idea of a young woman making herself vulnerable to a man, that is everything that a Christian dad does not want to allow, right? That's the whole purpose for a four-year college degree plus a start to get started on a career then maybe you guys can wait a second you kids. say he doesn't want to allow what what specifically are you saying he doesn't want to allow he does not want to allow his daughter to be vulnerable to a man he doesn't want a man displacing the agenda that he has adopted for his daughter which is all aspirational for him mm. i don't think it's that he doesn't want her involved with a man he much rather she's involved with a man than a woman if he's yeah. a conservative christian sure uh-huh. but what he doesn't want is to sacrifice his aspirations of money and security mm. are are they his aspirations for himself or for her I'm sorry, but I'm going to say for himself. I think mm. so. I've looked at my own dark heart on that issue, yeah, and I'm so. convinced that I would have been willing for my children to commit fornication. Because you were confident in your children's abilities, basically. No, not that I was confident in them. No. Because, that but, I wanted them on display. Hmm. I wanted to have things to write in my annual letters to talk to people about i wanted i wanted to be able to show who i was through my children well, that's all about your daughters though yeah but i don't you're not think talking that's, about your son no i'm saying my sons too no, 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 but no. i don't think that's i don't think that's the normal though i think the normal is that a father looks at his daughter and he wants his daughter to have a certain path so that in the future it not that she would be secure but that because she's secure with her degree and her job, because she's secure, he's secure as a father. He doesn't have to carry her. He doesn't have to worry about her. And if he puts her in a situation where she doesn't have that self-sufficiency. I'm going to agree vulnerable. with everything you're saying, Max, but I still don't agree with the main thrust, which is I don't think that most parents are different in the level of expectations for their sons and their daughters getting established in life before they get married. But can't a a daughter get established in life by marrying a doctor? No, because doctors are going to commit adultery with nurses and divorce them for younger flesh. Okay, so the vulnerability is greater. I mean, we live in a moral cesspool. Yeah. And this has not escaped the attention of fathers of daughters they love. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to want your daughter to be independent of the immorality 
that occupies even conservative Christian right. churches. Yeah, it's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. What is the way to do it? It's to do it financially. Well, so you want all of your kids, in other words, to be totally independent. Well, you say totally independent. I don't mind if they're dependent on me and my wife mm. somewhat. Mm-hmm. What I don't want them to be is dependent on their in-laws and dependent on some some dude or some dudette who is going to skip out on them when they have four children. Mm-hmm. And actually, I'd rather they not have four children because that anything that ups the ante beyond simply normalizing their fornication so that it becomes marriage, mm-hmm. I'm a little leery about. I would like to have everything de-escalated about the Christian home and marriage. Mm. Now, let me say one thing. I know I said earlier I would have been willing for my children to commit fornication. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Right. Okay. But I want people to understand how close to the edge we get Mm -hmm. when we have idols. You said that there should be, for starters, some idea of a man pursuing a woman. Mm -hmm. That's fundamental. And you see it in the body parts, right? Yeah. Man's body parts indicate pursuit and initiative, right? Mm -hmm. This is why God refers to, this is why Israel is always the bride and not the groom. God takes the initiative with his bride. Mm -hmm. Okay. But when you say that, I'm sitting here thinking, I know of at least one of my kids who are married now, where mm, did the man really pursue the woman? I'm not sure that anybody watching that go on would have said, yes, he pursued her. Now, it wasn't it wasn't unseemly, but the way she puts it is back when she was in junior high school, she decided she was going to marry. And so is that a violation of sexuality? And this is what I this is where I want to go on this. Okay. We're saying that sexuality is everywhere. We're saying that people are trying to suppress it so much that it's making life into a just steady diet of hypocrisies, like, for instance, transgender taking all the prizes in track and field, okay? We're saying that it would be helpful for Christians to begin to look at sexuality as involved with the tensions that they feel, with the fights they have, with with the frustrations they have in marriage, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. We're saying, but at the same time, People are very resistant to this being said because they immediately jump to hackneyed expressions of manhood and womanhood, one of them being that the man has to pursue the woman and the woman can't pursue the man. Yep, yep. And the truth is that a woman can actually pursue a man. All right. You remember Rita saying to the young women in our church who were in grad school particularly, go up, go up. Go up to the front, sit next to him, make him notice you. Yeah. yeah. Well, is that unbiblical? No. Is that a, a contradiction of how God made woman? No. And yet we look at Rebecca, and when Abraham's servant brings her to Isaac and he's out in the field meditating, what does she do? What she does is she gets off her mount and she covers herself, she veils herself. Mm-hmm. Now, is that necessary? Well, it's one of the most beautiful things that happens in Scripture. Mm. And so, 
you think about veiling yourself, you think about head coverings in the New Testament, you think about women praying with their heads uncovered. I noticed at the pro-life march this last week, it was freezing cold. And there were several prayers. And I noticed that almost all the men kept their hats on when we prayed. I don't know if you guys noticed it. And so people are going to recoil at me bringing these things up when we're talking about marriage. And I say, look, is it not fascinating the degree to which we could talk week after week, month after month, year after year about the differences between male and female Mm -hmm. and never run out of material? Why is it that we're so committed to squelching that discussion as a function of Christian faith? And yet it is the entertainment of the entire world. It's the art of the, it's the music, it's the, it's everything in the world, but deniable. I mean, it's even in lesbian relationships. You have a man and a woman. In les- it's even in gay, gay men. You have a man and a woman, you know. And so what I'm acutely conscious of, and I think all three of us are, is we have this, this recording is people listening to us knowing that we're pastors are going to be very uncomfortable with our desire to get them to think and speak and study manhood and womanhood. Yeah, they're going to be uncomfortable with that. And, and, and until we just resign ourselves to being Christians. Remember earlier you were talking about, you know, well, what is a Christian marriage? Mm-hmm. Well, is this not? The essence of a Christian marriage after faith in Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. it's a marriage that is unapologetic in discovering and loving and thinking about and building on what it means to be man and woman. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that I immediately go to the ways in which we overcorrect you know, there's places all over the country of small churches that are trying to correct for the sexless ways in which young men and women have been interacting. And so they place a lot of emphasis on a young man taking the initiative, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so then you end up with situations where the young man has this expectation. I mean, I don't know. He's like on a stage and everyone's watching him. And We've had that in the church. We had a man that went up to the father of a woman in our church and asked permission of the father to court his daughter. Mm -hmm. The woman herself had no clue he was interested in her. (laughs) And of course, the father is looking at him like he's, you know, got three horns coming out of his head. (laughs) And guess what? The father said no. (laughs) I mean, yeah, so... Yes, exactly. People approach it woodenly. They approach it very woodenly. And but that's no reason, you know, the improper use of a thing is not does mm-hmm. not invalidate mm-hmm. the proper use of it. It is right for a man to initiate. And again, it's not I mean, you you're right, Tim. It's it's weird how the sexes interact with each other because a woman does pursue a man. She just does it in a womanly way. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes in a masculine way. <laughs> in a masculine way. I mean, I'm thinking too. about my mother-in-law, Mrs. Yeah. Taylor, you know, who uh, dad kept putting off making any commitment to her. They'd already graduated from Wheaton. She left Wheaton because he wouldn't make any commitment to her. They were childhood sweethearts. And 
Then after they both graduated from college, he still wasn't making. Then he made plans to go to Dallas, Texas, to Dallas Theological Seminary. He wasn't making any commitment to her. And so he shows up in town and she says to him, guess what? I'm moving to Dallas with you. They're not even engaged. Oh my! And he says, well, that would require, you know, that we be married. And she said, well, our, our good friends are getting married next Saturday and we can have a joint wedding. And so guess what? They had a joint wedding. <laughs> and dad had a woman with him on the train when he went down to Dallas. And mom was very feminine and beautiful. Yeah. That's funny, I have never heard that story. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's one that's, of our favorites. That is hilarious. So and wonderful. Young men today, of course, if they're not taught to be men, if they're not taught to work, they're going to be really insecure about approaching a woman, about finding a wife. It's going to be really difficult. And so all of the things that we've talked about in the last couple months bear on this question of a man and a woman getting married. You have to train your sons to be men and your daughters to be women. But there's another aspect to this that I want to touch on, and I'll start with you, Max, and that is the rampant sexual sin that we bring into marriages. I mean, I suppose even in your men's generation, it was rampant, right? It was already rampant then. Absolutely. But now I would say that we've gotten to the point where we I basically don't know why a man and a woman have sex versus a man and a goat. That's where we're at at this point. And so what do you say to young men and women? Let's, let's start with the men. In the process of trying to find a wife and of getting married, what do you say to a man who has sexual sin? You know, obviously, pornography is huge. But maybe he's had relationships and he's had sexual sin with with actual women before getting married. Well, first of all, first of all, you have to actually be willing to talk about it. Mm. And I know for myself or for you two men, the times where we look at a couple and we ask them about whether or not they're being pure, mm. they're, they may be close to marriage. They may be six months from marriage. They may be a year from marriage. Then there's just been dating. They may be a week from marriage. And you, uh, you think, well, what do you mean? What's that have to do with it? Well, the fact is that how in the world are you ever going to bring up uh, freedom from sexual immorality or dealing with sexual immorality to a couple if you're never willing to even talk about the simple reality of impurity with a couple who's preparing for marriage? Mm. If you're not going to be able to talk to people about purity. And so if you, and I was talking to one young man and I, I, he had moved to our church recently, not recently, but he had only recently moved to our church at the time. And I didn't have much time with him. I thought this is going to be a quick time. I may never see you again. He's trying to figure out, you know, what to do, how his life is, this and this and this. And I knew that I, I just didn't have much time. So I started asking him about his sexual purity. Mm. And I don't think, I just don't think pastors ask men about their sexual purity. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think pastors' wives and the Titus two women of the church are asking women about their sexual purity. And so when we get together with people, we you ask the question, well, what do you say to men? Well, the first thing is you have to be willing to actually talk to somebody about you know, it's, it's in keeping with the rest of the conversation we're having. Are we willing to actually talk about sexuality 
and it's mm. and and its connection to our lives as believers and the reality of sexuality and who we are sexually in marriage you can't talk about it if you can't say things and talk about things with people openly mm-hmm. and i don't talk about it openly i don't i don't yell across the room on a sunday after service hey you've been pure this week yeah, yeah. you know but I have literally taken couples out of the the greeting line after a service and just mm-hmm. taken them over to the side and looked at them mm-hmm. and said, I wanted to ask you, have you guys been pure? Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that's the beginning of it, I think. you There has to be some concern and some feeling of responsibility for people in their sexual purity. I'd almost say a willingness to bear their sin. You know. Yeah, because it's not fun to yeah, listen to. Yeah. yeah, I think some of us would be willing to sign on to a feeling of responsibility. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that's hard with responsibility is that we find sin. Yeah, if and, it, if it were sorry to interrupt you, if so it were just if it were just that this question was an engineerish question, and that we were just looking at it using a slide rule or a calculator, and we could actually engage mm-hmm. with such questions mm-hmm. with that kind of uh, distance yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, then that would be anything to it but the fact is when you enter into asking people those kinds mm-hmm. of questions and you feel that sense of responsibility for them you're entering into their world to hear what they have to say yeah, i want to say something to people listening which is your pastor may well not want you to confess sin to him oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> especially sexual sin and the reason is your pastor may not be able to confess his own sin Mm. your pastor may not be able to even acknowledge to himself his own sin. And the burden of you confessing your sin to your pastor would awaken in him how morbid he is in his spiritual life, and he'll run from it. And so whether you're a father and mother, whether you're a pastor, an elder, a deacon, whatever you are, I think at this point we have to say, do you really love the sheep that God has put in your home and in your church? Do you love them? And because if you know, if you love them, you will bear their burdens, Mm. right? You'll bear them. And what an awful burden it is to try to help a couple who say, for instance, the man has been raped by his older brother as he grew up Mm -hmm. and they want to get married. Now, that's a real example from my ministry years ago mm-hmm. bear the burden of a couple who are both coming off immoral relationships mm-hmm. and are now trying to be pure but boy they've both been marked by sexual immorality and they don't know how to live without it you know the hurdles aren't real high for them to go into or a couple we had uh, back in in seminary who asked us to hold them accountable They were students at Gordon College, and they confessed that they had gotten intimate with each other. We asked them, okay, please, would you agree with us? You will not be alone in your room together. And they said, no, no, that's too, that's too much. (laughs) And we then, this is literally true. And this is back in 1979 or 80. Okay, will you agree that you will be in your room, your dorm room, but You'll have the door open. No, 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 that's too much. Will you agree that you'll be in the room with the door closed, but that you won't touch body parts that you don't have? 
no, 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 that's, that's unrealistic. We finally got to the point where they finally agreed that they would be in a room alone, undressed, but would keep their underwear on. This is literally true. These were evangelicals. One of them was from Wheaton, hmm. from our home church in Wheaton. Wow. And Mary Lee and I looked at them and they said, this is absurd. Yeah. You have no desire to be. So you think about all these different sins and rebellions that we bring into these relationships. And this is the nature of our work as pastors, elders, elders' wives. But you're talking about pastors and, and it's right. You're right. Uh, I, I'm trying to get everyone listening to realize this is precisely the nature of the work of fathers and mothers and pastors and elders and deacons and their wives. Mm. In other words, until people begin to understand that this is why they must subject themselves to the church. Mm. It's precisely for dangers like this. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they must have churches where the pastors are willing to bear the sheep's burdens. Yeah. But I think there's another aspect of that, and that is looking at the couple themselves. I mean, they have to begin to ask the, themselves the question, do I really love this person? And they do that by confessing their sin. So it's almost like, do I love this woman enough to tell her about my... Now we're talking about prior sins. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of what a pastor brings, you said, well, what are you going to say to a young man who comes or a young woman who comes and they have a sexual history or they have an, a constant use of pornography? Mm -hmm. And you know, I think one thing is you have to be ready to help them to believe in God's promises to make them pure. To clear, clean them up, that they can have power over sin. And I think a lot of them come just feeling absolutely hopeless about their ability to be set free from their sin. And often we look at them and we're basically saying to them, yes, we've seen people who have come with addictions to pornography to such an extent and we have seen God set them free. It's not saying that everybody we've ever seen come, they have been set free from pornography, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But we have seen that God does work and he does make people, set people free. We have seen people who've come with sexual histories and sexual experiences in their past and they've come into marriage and that has not been the destruction of their marriage, but it has actually been something that they've been able to see a good marriage built mm -hmm. after. Yeah. Right. We have seen people who've been uh, victims of child molestation and difficulty, predation, and they have come and God has healed them mm -hmm. and they have gone into marriage. In all of those cases, there is something that is still carried. Yeah, there's a wound. There's, there. there are wounds, there are memories, there are pains. They're mm -hmm. always still carried, but they're able to be managed and they're able to be overcome by God's mercy and by his grace. And mm -hmm. marriage becomes, can be very good, very sound. Very is there something essential that is common there to help couples? What's like the most essential thing that you would say as a pastor, helping couples navigate that? Is it just the willingness to confess sin and be humble in that way? Is it... Because I, I, I almost think that that's secondary. I almost think that the central thing is, do we have faith? Do we have faith in a God who changes us? Do we have faith for the power of the Holy Spirit 
I think a lot of times when we want to hide our sin and are alone in it, it's because we don't believe that God will forgive us and that he will heal us. It has been a precious thing to me in terms of sexual temptations to remind myself constantly that the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that when we as pastors go up to couples or to a man struggling with homosexual desires, a woman struggling, leaving lesbianism, that we look them in the eye and we say to them, how are you doing? What we're really saying is God has power to free you. Hmm. God has the power to protect you. You may live a holy life. Hmm. God will give you the desires of your heart. God will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, that is, again, not hackneyed. That's not exodus, the ministry called exodus. That's not, well, if you come and get a little bit of counseling from us, we'll, we'll talk to you about your, your dad and you'll no longer have gender or sexual dysphoria. You'll yeah. no longer have temptations you have. Mm. But it's so important that people recognize that just as God has made male and female, he's also made the church. And the church is the mother that feeds us and protects us and cares for us. And so if we're alone in our sexual sin, it's likely we're alone in the place of our greatest imprisonment spiritually. Hmm. And that's a lie of Satan that there is no hope for you, that you'll have to die with this sexual sin. Hmm. It's a lie from hell. Mm -hmm. And so I can think of couples or a, a wife or a husband listening to this in bondage because of the sin of their spouse or their own sin. And they're saying, well, my pastor doesn't ask me. My elders don't ask me. I want to say to you, don't give up for heaven's sakes. Mm. Find another church. Mm. Find a different pastor. You know, if you were going to a doctor and he kept telling you you didn't have a tumor and your belly kept getting bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger and you pressed on it, and it really hurt, and you're a man, it's not pregnancy, mm. <laughs> how long would you keep going to the doctor? I'm not trying to divide churches or create schism, but for heaven's sakes, find a shepherd. Mm -hmm. Don't do this alone. You know, in his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer says, sin always wants to be hidden alone. And if you, can you please hope that when your children reach their teenage years, they're not going to look at your relationship with your wife and have some hidden sense that something's wrong. And what is wrong is that this father has been abusing himself with pornography instead of making love to his wife for decades. And he hasn't stopped it as his children were born and grown. And so there's a vacuum of authority and leadership in the home. Mm. No. Do not send your children out of your home impotent because of your sin and unhopeful that anybody is willing to help you with it. Well, can we talk about children? Sure. You want to talk about getting married. I don't know that other than how long you wait to get married and whether you wait until you're established. Mm -hmm. All right. I don't know that there's a stickier issue that comes up more often in premarital counseling than the expectations of parents that you will put off having children. Mm -hmm. They want 
the educational loans paid off. They want you to have bought a house and have a decent amount of equity in the home. They have all these different things that parents want their children have before they have children. Well, this issue will come to the fore in premarital counseling. Oh, yeah. It's common for the father of the bride to say to the prospective son-in-law, I want you to agree with me that my daughter is going to finish her this and that professional training before you have any children. All right. I'm willing for her to marry you as long as you make a commitment that she's going to finish this degree or get established in this job. Mm-hmm. Well, the hidden text is, in other words, that that children will be an elective decision for marriage. In other words, that you will use birth control. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a sticky thicket. One of the things that that Mary Lee and I, I say in the book on marriage that's about to come out is the Bible requires in the Old Testament the man to spend the first year making his wife happy. Mm -hmm. And one of the most sure ways of making almost any woman happy is to give her a child. Now, I know that people are going to object to that. and Well, you don't know my wife. But what I suspect the truth is, is I do actually know your wife, and I know which men and women made her into the way she is. Hmm. Because what we see in this church is again and again, if we honor our wives, if we honor motherhood, if we honor children, if we are gaga over it, not everybody's barefoot and pregnant. That's not what I'm talking about. But we honor it. We celebrate it. We love it. If we do that, all of a sudden there blossoms in the young women of the church this are you serious? You mean I can actually want children? Is that okay? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and they're they're born again. Right. <laughs> you know, literally they're born again, yeah. and a new a new beauty comes out of them. Now, if we are to please our wives as husbands, to leave our own family and to cleave, mm-hmm. and then to spend a year pleasing our wives—not just a year, but certainly the first year. One of the things we have to talk about as we get married is what priority lovemaking is going to have in our relationship, lovemaking, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is another way of saying (laughs) babymaking. And are we going to celebrate that our wife is Eve, (laughs) that she is the life giver, that that is at the heart of who she is? And... I know, I you know, I have been in so many periodical, I've talked to so many parents, I've read so much, that as I say this, I myself cringe, you know, because I know, <laughs> I know people are going to say, oh my goodness, where did the, what rock did these people crawl out <laughs> from under? Well, it's, it's true. Uh, we seem very strange. But, you know, I do think, I mean, it's a world gone mad. We've gone mad. I was thinking about how the father is deathly afraid that his daughter's life will be over when she has that first child. And so I was thinking, like, the cost of that first child in his mind is so huge. Um, And everyone's afraid of that. But I was thinking about my own experience. I didn't have that pressure. So we had our first child before our first anniversary. And in my mind, I don't know, I never, I don't think I ever thought of it as that costly, but I do feel like children now (laughs) are more and more costly. 
And that's interesting. I don't know. That's an interesting flip that I've never really thought about before. What do you mean by costly? Do you mean that because of our two-income family system, they're more costly? No, I, I think I, inflation. I think they're more when costly? I when I got married, we were, you know had full desire for children, and God gave us a child right away, and then we had more children pretty quickly in pretty quick succession, and that was never. I mean, you know, with every new child. My point is, there was never like we were never in terror about the first child. Mm-hmm. That was just exciting, joyful. But <laughs> when you have seven kids, <laughs> number eight sounds pretty scary. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill. But it's interesting that uh, it's yeah, flipped. It's, it's gone flipped. from one you to know? seven. <laughs> you are making a mountain out of a mole. <laughs> well again i just want people to think by faith yeah yeah and so on this issue i think okay listen if you can get your head around the fact that all pharmaceuticals and all embryology programs agree that every hormonal method of birth control works significant number of times by preventing a child from staying secure in his mother's womb. He's already conceived, but his mother's womb becomes inhospitable to protecting him and caring for him, and so he will die. Mm -hmm. Now, get your mind around that. That's the first thing you have to think about when you think about uh, the cost of having children. What is the cost of not having children? The church doesn't think about it. The church just says, well, you know, don't go in and pay somebody to to go inside you and rip your baby to shreds. And, you know, RU486 is bad. But the entire prophylactic contraceptive birth control culture that has invaded the church is antithetical to anything that's biblical. It's absolutely antithetical, starting with the fact that we all have blood on our hands because we have killed our unborn children by the methods of birth control that we use. Mm -hmm. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm not bringing this up to be aggressive-aggressive, let alone (laughs) (laughs) passive-aggressive. I'm bringing it up so that we realize that all choices aren't good. Hmm, I don't get that. Well, in the Western world, we just... Oh, oh, oh. It's the summa bonum. It's the supreme good is to have choices. Right. And so maybe contentment, beauty, love, and godliness go with knocking off a few of the choices is unacceptable because we're Christians. Well, so for instance, the thing that we need to have in our brains as we are negotiating getting married is first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby and a baby carriage. I mean, we've divorced that, and the only reason we think that way is because that's the world has told us to separate marriage and babies. They're not. They're not. To have children is costly. My wife and I were talking today about families in the church, and I, I'm thinking about times I, when I was in college, I went and worked on a paint crew, and we painted in these McMansions in Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah. And they were huge, and the kitchens were vaulted like a small chapel. <laughs> I mean, they were huge. And yeah. they didn't have any furniture because they couldn't afford furniture, and they didn't have any children. Yeah. They had a they had a six-bedroom, eight-bedroom house that was five to 6,000 square feet and they had no children and they had no money for furniture. And it's to what Tim is saying about the economy of the whole thing. You look at it and you think, okay, 
what's that all about? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, they might be saying, well, you, you know, then you took, look at somebody who's about to have their eighth child mm-hmm. and you say, you look at them and you say, well, you know, you have a lot of children. Your house is too small. You need a bigger house. And then you have this, you have this question of the size of the house and mm. they have, they have to make choices. Some of them can have a huge house because they're, financially able to do so others of them can't have a huge house Mm -hmm. and so they have to make decisions but anybody who has eight children is making decisions oh yeah about what they're you know spending their money on places where as tim said they're going to say no Mm -hmm. and they're going to say yes i want us to go back to this talking about the cost of having children. Mm-hmm. I'm completely sympathetic to you. My wife spends a lot of time over at your house <laughs> helping. I happen to not have her in bed with me last night because she was over at your house helping. Yeah. Okay. And I love that, by the way. Yeah. Don't ever forget it. Okay. I just love my wife helping with all her grandchildren. But we talk about you looking at the cost of a prospective next child. This is not an announcement. Yeah. And that it seems pretty serious. <laughs> and it's because it would be number eight. Yeah. Whereas the first one, I was not. Yeah. I yeah. I wasn't worried about it. Well, the first one is romantic. Right. And the first one will not turn 20 when you're 75. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, as things go along, you see more of your life being consumed by fatherhood. Right? right. That's oh, a yeah. re- very real I've started part. to make those calculations. That's yeah. Right. I yeah. just turned 40. Okay. Now listen. Yeah. Again, can we think with Christian minds and by faith? If we do that, we're not just going to ask ourselves, what is the cost of using hormonal birth control in terms of bloodshed? Mm. But we're also going to ask ourselves, what is the cost of turning my home and my marriage and my wife away from children? All right. Now, now, now bear with me here. Okay. What is the cost of saying no to children? And that, again, is a question that nobody asks because the culture is not sympathetic to the question. Right. Now, let me put forward a cost. Mm-hmm. I remember counseling a couple where for three years, one husband and one wife of two best friends had been committing adultery with each other. Mm. And so, Mary Lee and I saw it was going on. It was obvious to to us, but everybody else played like they didn't know what was going on. Well, finally, we brought it into the open, and we got them each to confess to their spouses that they had been unfaithful the previous years, right? Wow. One of the things we learned going through that is that as we worked our way down into the reasons that this sin— was given into, what we found very quickly was that one of the things that caused them to be vulnerable to it was the fact that one of the couples had stopped working with each other. They had worked with each other for years. And all of a sudden, they stopped working with each other, and they both loved working with each other. Hold on. Mm -hmm. And when they stopped the anchor emotionally, the, the raison d'etre, whatever, however you, however you pronounce that, the reason to exist, the, the center no longer held. Yeah. Now, isn't that interesting? 
And so at the time, I'm sure they made a decision that it, that it would be more profitable financially if one of the two of them got a better job with a more dependable income and with benefits and health provisions and all this other stuff. It was just a rational decision. Mm-hmm. And it would assure the stability of their family financially for years to come and did it, did it, did it. What they didn't realize they were doing was choosing a cost that was hidden. Ah. There was a hidden cost that nobody would ever think up. Yep. Now, I can see people saying, well, are you saying that if a couple stops working together and one of them gets a job someplace else that they're choosing adultery? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there are always hidden costs to major decisions we make. If you decide that you don't want children to be a priority in your wife's life, now I know you're going to freak out at me saying this. Do not be surprised if she finds something that is antagonistic to the health and unity of your home to replace children in her priorities. So we went to a wedding years ago, and I want to say it was 30 years ago. And before the wedding, the couple announced to us that they were going to not have any children until they would not have to deny their child anything. And what did Whoa. we what did we know? They weren't going to do what? They were not going to have to n- deny their child anything. They weren't going to have a kid until they did that. Until they okay. did that. And, wow. what, and what did we, we looked at each other and what did we say? <laughs> they would never have kids. Well, no, it was worse than that. Well, maybe uh, not. Yeah, their, it is their worse marriage, than that. Their marriage would be doomed. They would, not, wow. they would not stay married. And they didn't. They weren't married, but I don't know. It, was, it seemed like it was uh, a year, maybe. They were married and that was the end of it. They were both professionals. They had both had good job tracts what you have to realize is that when you choose as a married couple that children are not going to be the fruitfulness that you're going to give to god that you refuse that you're going to protect yourself from it that you're going to try to get your wife out from under it as quickly as possible that you want a vacation home you want everything that a second income when you make those decisions do not be surprised if they end up causing suffering in your life, in your home, in your children, in your wife's life that you never would have anticipated. Mm. God is not going to honor a man who chooses to refuse the blessing of children and refuses to have the propagation of a godly seed at the very center of his marriage vows. God makes us one, it says in Malachi, for the propagation of a godly seed. And so when you turn your back on a major purpose of your marriage that God is pleased to bless you with, and you say, no, 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 we're going to have a vacation life, we're going to have a summer home, we're going to have a ski boat, we're going to go skiing in the winter, we're going to be free. Our goal is for me to retire and my wife to be free of changing diapers as quickly as possible. Okay, And nobody puts it that crassly. You have made your bed, and you will lie in it. Mm. And I'm not going to describe to you what that bed will be. Mm. But I have seen again and again and again couples regret. Whereas my father, is, he approached his death. And I'm not, he didn't know he was dying, but, you know, he was older and he did die very soon afterwards. My father said, you know, of all the things, you know, I've been an author, I've been traveled around 
constantly speaking, you know, I'm CEO of David C. All this stuff, you know, friends, wonderful friendships. He says, the thing that gives me the greatest pleasure is my children. Mm. Yeah. And so I, I, as you go into marriage, you said you want to talk about the process of getting married and and what a Christian marriage is. And I want to put children (laughs) right at the front of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about how to summarize, and it's really it's funny because we can we could talk a long time, but it's really not complicated. It actually is very well summarized in those three purposes of marriage. If you think about mutual companionship, well, you know that emotional intimacy, working on intellectual, intellectual yeah, all of that spiritual. Is, is difficult, but it's important, and it's a joy, and it's a joy. It's I a mean, joy. honestly, I look at the three of us and think of our marriages, yeah. They're drop-dead gorgeous, all three of us, I think. You wouldn't tell me if yours wasn't because it's my daughter and I happen to favor her. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know, it's very sweet. And and then you think, you know, as a prophylactic against sin, young men and women who want to get married should get very good at making love. Well, they should, especially after they get married. After they get, after well, they get married. Well, there are some things they can do preparing for it. Well, like okay. turn off the pornography and well, stop pleasuring yes. yourself. That's the thing, like... It's almost, I almost want to say you should, well, see, uh, this is the, this is the <laughs> what, difficulty. What, what? I'm well, curious. I, I'll tell you, but the difficulty is, you know, it's like premarital counseling. It's like you, you want to say something to people, but it's like you know that they're not going to have any idea or they're going to take it the wrong way until they've gone through it. And I want to say you should prepare to have a lot of sex. You should expect to have a lot of sex. A lot of it. And for the the man's thinking like this is great. This is of course no, that's what I want. It's not. <laughs> well, but he's gonna think that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, exactly. I'm saying the sex is gonna be hard. It's gonna be difficult, and you're gonna be tempted to think of somebody other than your wife as you make love to your wife. Yeah, there's all kinds of th- yes. But I mean that's very common, and people should hear me say that. And they're going to say, ah, yeah, I resemble that implication. Uh-huh. And then I'm going to say, what is the best way of getting better at sex and not at immorality? And the best way actually is to build the companionship. Yeah. In other yeah. words, the feeding across these three purposes right. is unbelievable. And so what I've realized is the best way to protect myself from thinking and looking, okay, mm-hmm is to love Mary Lee. Yeah. And once I really, really love her, and I don't mean by that that I really, really lay down my life for her. I'm not Eeyore. Yeah. I'm talking about enjoying her, seeing what God has given me. You know, houses and property you inherit from your fathers, says Proverbs, but a, a prudent wife is a gift from God. I remember being at a bachelor party sort of thing where there were quite a, there was a cross section of men there and a man give it the advice that sometimes when your wife asks you how she looks, it's good to lie a little bit. It's not a surprise to you that that man is not at our church and is divorced. Why did that stick in my brain? Because I just thought you have to delight in your wife. You have to delight in her. If you're not delighting in her, then you got a problem. Well, plus for him to say that to other men is so crass. Yeah, yeah. So then the last last one, last purpose is a godly seed. Couples going into marriage have to have in their brain that they're going to have children. They're going to have children. At this point, Christian pastors, even the most conservative ones, are 
careful to qualify and say things like, well, I don't want to bind your conscience about the first year or whatever. Christian couples should go in expecting to have, have children. Well, another way of saying that is the pastor ought not to worry about binding their conscience because God already has. The nature of binding of conscience means that our conscience is in submission to God. Mm -hmm. That's the meaning of binding the conscience. That's why the Apostle Paul says that you're to obey the civil authorities for conscience sake. Mm. Our conscience is bound to God, mm -hmm. and so we must not violate it. So then you ask yourself, what is the biblical doctrine of children? What is the biblical doctrine of fruit from the marriage bed? What is the biblical doctrine of sex? How does Scripture treat the issue of children? And once you go down that road, there's no return because it is an unequivocal, yeah. uh, uniform, unison statement of children being a blessing. As Tim said that, I was thinking about a couple coming to you saying, just saying to you as a pastor, we don't want children. Yeah. We're not planning on any children. Children are not for us. What do you do then? You're the pastor, and what you've heard them say is that while God says children are for marriage, well, I would, I, I think children. I would start by asking questions, you know, like, do they yeah. actually understand anything? Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I'm with you. I'm only saying, looking from a thousand feet above mm -hmm. at somebody saying that, what you realize is that this is the world we live in. It is the world and we live in. It's not very often that anyone comes to us and says that. Really, I mean, what, once, twice, maybe it's not very often, but the fact of the matter is there are lots of people in the world who live that way. We don't ever want to have children, mm -hmm. and yet they always are willing to have sex. And then on the other hand, you're accused constantly by people in the world. You're accused constantly about the fact that you're a church that celebrates children, but they don't say it that way. They always say it in such a way as to, uh, accuse you of uh -huh. being of being a uh, oppressor of, of women. people. Of women. Well, of women, but of but they'd say probably of anybody. But yeah, of women, they'd of say women. that you're an oppressor of women. Mm -hmm. uh, so far as just, I I believe they actually don't even hear you when you're talking to them about it, hmm. right? And so this is the accusation, and you look at them and say, well, you know, we're believers. The Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. We'd want people to believe what the Bible says, that children are a blessing from the Lord, and that this is a normal part of having a marriage is that you have children. Hmm. And it's, it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, but you have a lot of children. Well, yeah, but you don't have any children. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like you, they're never satisfied with it because really – it's not about the children at all. It's about God, I think. Hmm. I think finally always it's true. always about God. They hate God and anything that smacks of God. If As long as they can have children, you know, in China, now we can have children. Mm -hmm. Because it's not about God. It's because we've got to keep, we've got to keep up the financial uh, underpinnings of the nation, and so now we want everybody to have four children. In fact, in some places they'll pay you to have children. Well, we're going to pay you to have children. I remember reading an article about the China one-child policy, and some official saying, "You know, the birth of a child is a matter of state." That was his position. Well, that's the position of America on education. Mm. I mean, we've seen tremendous strides made. Joseph was just sending us ah uh, yeah that thing today about Ohio looking at giving 
$5,000 to every family for every child under high school, and then seven, $7,500 for every child in high school for them to use for homeschooling, however for they any, want, for however they want. Yeah. And, and this is a radical idea in America mm-hmm. that parents would be able to direct yeah. their children's education. Yeah. And further, that parents would be able to direct the souls of their children to the God of their choice. Mm -hmm. In other words, (laughs) you know, secularism will not oppress the children of Ohio if that law gets passed because the parents will be able to pass on their faith to their children much more effectively if they control the education. Mm -hmm. And so you think about, I just think again and again when we talk, people listening will think it's a guilty pleasure that they're listening to us. They'll feel guilty because we go against so much of the godlessness of our culture that it overwhelms people. And so, I think there will be a lot of people listening to this in the future podcasts on marriage who will say to themselves, well, I can listen to this because I have headphones on. Mm -hmm. But I'm hoping that people listening will think, would I be willing to play this for my Sunday school class? Mm. And there may be more people willing to do that, but then would I be willing to play this at my family reunion? Would I be willing to confess Jesus Christ in my family reunion by explaining to everyone there that I won't use hormonal birth control because it, it very well might make me guilty of the bloodshed of my own children? Will I be willing to talk to them about how I am afraid of having my eighth child, but I believe that in my case, it's an act of obedience to God and love for my wife? You see, in other words, those of you listening, I don't want you to think that this is a guilty pleasure. This is simply Christian confession of faith. Mm. And The world isn't getting better because of all the godlessness Mm -hmm. and idolatry and perversion and sexual immorality that the world has chosen. What are we ashamed of? Yeah, what are we ashamed of? What are we ashamed of? (laughs) I think that these things will be the envy of the world. That's what it is. A, A Christian family is the envy of the world. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I hope you come back next week for our third episode on marriage. I'm excited about it. I think it's the best one so far. My name is Lucas Weeks, and the conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Bye for now.